0: I want to talk about an idea, in in our introduction, I want to talk about an idea that is coming in the scripture we're going to read today that was very familiar to the people of the time and is less so to us, and that is the science of grafting uh, plants in agriculture. You know, we think food comes from a supermarket, Uh, so we're a little bit disconnected from the cultivated cycle of life um, I, certainly the younger the younger we are the probably more so is the case but in in their in the culture of scripture it was pre-industrial and pretty much everybody these were common just the work of agriculture was generally familiar so paul's going to talk about grafting with an expectation that the hearers will listen with a keen understanding ear and so i, I figured figured me just talk a little bit about it before we we start Grafting is the process of fusing the desired fruit-bearing branch of... Let's just use an apple tree for an example. We want a golden, delicious apple. Grafting is the science of fusing a golden, delicious branch to the sturdy rootstock of a good old apple tree that can weather the years and take root in the soil, which is a crab apple tree, okay? in the United States pretty much the only natural apple tree that will ever grow ungrafted is crab apples. Like Johnny Appleseed planted crab apples. Okay? Um, because you, think you can't really put a golden delicious seed in the ground and plant a golden delicious apple tree. You're going to plant a crab apple tree and you're going to graft it. Almost every fruit that we eat off the tree is from a grafted tree. So you, and, and uh, actually a member of our church, Jack Hill, gave me one of these. It was a, uh, it was, a, it was a grafted apple tree. It was this big. It was that long. It was, it was like a stick. The bottom half of it was your classic apple tree, your sturdy rootstock. And then it was spliced in with the top, which was the stem off of a crab apple, or excuse me, a golden delicious tree. And, and you could see the wound in the tree where it had been grafted, and that wound will heal, and, and it, they'll f- fuse together and become one tree and bear good fruit. In fact, a couple years ago, a, a branch volunteered off that tree below the graft line, and I was told to cut it, because then that branch would have given me crab apples, while the rest of the tree would have given me golden delicious. Kind of neat, huh? So this idea of grafting is what we're going to arrive at today, which is um, the merging, uh, the fusing in of an alien branch in order to fulfill some sort of purpose. That's uh, going to come before us. Okay, uh, let me uh, catch us up a little bit to speed in Romans. The letter of Romans was written to the church in Rome. The church in Rome had Jews and Gentiles meeting together, That we at least we believe that much, that there was a mixed community, and we could imagine that there might have been stress inside of that mixed community, um, the the Jews that were there were dealing with the fact that most of their people had left and the Gentiles were coming in with no respect or regard necessarily for the Jewish way of life and they were being told to worship as one. Okay, so this letter of Paul kind of enters into an environment like that and Paul begins the first swath of the letter, the first Eight chapters is to share that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the same gospel for the Jew as it is for the Gentile. That the Jew and the Gentile were are longing and connected to the very same story. Their salvation comes the very same way, and uh, they really are the same fundamentally before the Lord. That was the first eight chapters, and then the ninth chapter begins to deal with maybe a spirit of Uh, Jewish discontent with why their kinsmen have left. And in the ninth chapter, Paul really deals mostly with the tone of the question. Like they want to know why their kinsmen have left, and they want to know now. They want a good answer, and it better be a good answer. It's kind of the spirit that... Paul seems to confront in the ninth chapter. And so the punchline of the ninth chapter is really, um, God doesn't owe you the kind of answer you want. God's going to give you the kind of answer he's going to give you. And you're going to like it. It's kind of the ninth chapter. And uh, in addition to that, Paul really challenges them in the ninth chapter to say, who are you to question the methodology of God in fulfilling his will? You need to decide two things. Are you going to follow God? Do you believe in his nature and who he is? And do you want his will to be done? And out, outside of that, get out of his way is kind of a, a, maybe a slightly overly aggressive explanation of the ninth chapter. God's going to do what God's going to do to make his will known. And then you get to the 10th chapter, and it's almost as though Paul comes back in the 10th chapter to give an explanation. You know, like, so he's hard with them. He's hard with them in the ninth chapter. And then in the 10th chapter, it's kind of like, okay, you really want to know why? You want to know why your Israelite brethren are not following, not Christians, no longer in church, no longer coming? He says the problem is, it's one, it's, this, it's one problem. He says the problem is they've always based their righteousness in works. And Jesus comes along and says, no one comes to the Father but through me. They've been happy, they've been proud of their merit and of their labor. And they've they've kind of anchored their notion of righteousness in that. And as a result, the idea of a righteousness by faith through the work of Jesus Christ is a turnoff to them. They are turned off by Jesus. That's what he says. Jesus is the way to God, but is a stumbling block for your kinsmen. They don't want Jesus. At least not the way he comes. So finally, we arrive in the 11th chapter, which is where we are today. And last week or previously, we talked about the first question, which is in 11.1, which he's entertaining again his kinsmen, saying, Well, then has God simply rejected his people? Has God just rejected them? To which Paul says, Of course, he has not rejected them. I'm a Jew. Some of you are Jews. God's not rejected us, but what he has done is preserved only a remnant while, by and large, the majority are leaving. That's, that brings us up to where we are today. And I want to pick up in the seventh verse. And I'll read 7 to 10. And I will say before I read, it's a challenge. Sometimes the scriptures make it challenging to walk away with a very practical tip like, this, uh, this morning is not going to afford you, like, I need to wake up in the morning and have a quiet time or pray three times a day. Um, we will work together to, to allow the word to, to have permission to transform us, but it, it's not going to show up in three snazzy bullets, right? It's going to maybe show up a little bit more in the, a, a little deeper behind the stage there. Here's what he says in the seventh verse. What What? What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Right? It was seeking salvation on its own righteousness, not on the righteousness of Christ, so it failed. The elect obtained it, that's the remnant, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David said... Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, these are excerpts from the Old Testament, both of these. To be uh, completely clear, if you go back and you read the scriptures around these, what you find is they're passages that are recited or said following seasons of Israelite unfaithfulness. So he's grabbing the, these are very hard statements about God hardening, but in in their context, they're coming. They're coming nonetheless at the end of a season of unfaithfulness. So so the Israelites are are you know. Disobeying the Lord calls them back. They disobey the Lord calls them back. They disobey the Lord calls them back. They disobey the Lord calls them back. They don't come back. Fine. The Lord says, "Fine, I'm going to harden you." That's a little bit of the spirit. Now, I don't want to lean on that too heavily. I, I, I mean, I want us to feel the hardness here, because, in other words, God's demonstrating. Hey, I've preserved a remnant because of my own grace. I've preserved a remnant of my people Israel, and the and the remaining. I've in their hardness, we might say, I've assisted. I've opened the back door as they've walked out. And that's how it feels. To which the next question kind of is wrestling with the hardness of all that. Look at verse eleven. He says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Is the whole re- is their whole reason that you raised them up was so that you would cut them out? In other words, did you plant the olive seed, the tree, and you cultivate the olive tree and grow the olive tree, water it, trim it, prune it, care for it, shelter it? Did you grow this big olive tree? only to cut out one tiny little stem that you're going to hold on as your room, and everything else you chopped up for firewood. Is that what you did? And was that your purpose the whole time? That's the heart of that question. Was your purpose the whole time to grow up this olive tree for firewood? To which Paul answers. Let me start in verse 11. And I'll read 11 and 12. I ask, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather... Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Okay, I want to process what he just said. Did did they stumble, were they raised up? Did they stumble in order to fall? He says, no, they did not. They did not do that. God did not raise them up solely for the purpose of falling. Rather, in their rejection, all right, so when they rejected the gospel, God used their rejection as a way of inviting the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, to come to him. And then he says, and God's going to use the Gentile world coming to him as a mechanism by which to incite jealousy among those very people to come back. It's like a soap opera, or re- I have to say reality TV now, right? I mean, it, there's, right? Israel rejects, the world comes in. As the world's coming in on account of their rejection, it's inciting jealousy. It's turning them going, well, what, did, what, do, they ha- what do they see that we didn't like? What, what is it that they got going on? Why are they... Did we make a bad decision? You know, it's so the Lord's saying, I'm gonna use the return of the Gentiles to somehow turn my people back into me. And God does this hardening and softening along the way. So as the Israelites were not receiving the gospel, he hardens so as to, make the me- to enable the mechanism of bringing the Gentiles in. And likewise, the Lord's going to have his hand involved in turning Israel back. You might wonder, how does this work? How does one incite jealousy in order to turn back? You know, if you ever, it's a parenting moment. You know, you have a little Tommy, and little Tommy is in what I was raised as calling the suggest-reject mode, where you try to give Tommy a toy, but Tommy doesn't want that toy. Tommy, you cannot make Tommy happy right now. There's nothing you can give him. He's enjoying the way he can manipulate you in his bad mood, right? So you put a toy in his lap, and he just lets it fall off, right? No, no, it's just whiny, right? You know how you make little Tommy want that toy? You give it to another child. (laughs) Then it is the best toy in the whole wide world. It incites Tommy to jealousy, The gift of the gospel has been given to the Gentiles. You don't want it, I'll give it to the Gentiles. To which Paul is saying, and that God knows that that will ultimately incite them to jealousy, to turn back. God may use this very human impetus to point them back towards his grace. It's going to be said again in thirteen to fifteen. Let me let me read thirteen to fifteen. Okay, it's almost a, it's almost a repeat. It's a repeat of the concepts, except that Paul is saying this to the Gentiles in the church. Okay, so he's talking about the Jews, but now he's in the, talking about what they've done. But now he's directing his attention towards the Gentiles in the fellowship. Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. He says in thirteen, in as much. Then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. See what Paul's saying? I'm aggressive in my ministry to Gentiles. Paul's saying this. It's a humbling word for for the Gentiles. I'm aggressively engaged with you because in the back of my heart, I'm hoping that it will somehow make them turn back. 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? He said, what can you imagine? He says, what else would be left? If the Jewish rejection brought the world in, then what would the Jewish inclusion mean? I mean, in this time, to a conversation of Jews, there's Jews and there's the world. That's Gentile. So God comes to bring his gospel to the world. I mean, Jew and Gentile, right? That's the thesis of the book of Romans. is first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. God's come to bring his love to the whole world. He's saying when, God, when Christ came, the Jews left, but the world received, the Gentiles received. He says, what would happen if they were to come back? He says, can you imagine anything less than the resurrection of the dead? I mean, he's pointing to the end, I, I think. He's pointing to what else was remaining but to end it, You know, that the dead in Christ will arise, the end. There's a confidence, there's a confidence in Paul who has a confidence in the Lord that the Lord is not done with Israel or that the Lord's redemptive nature is not done with Israel. I think this is a clear expression that God has did not raise them up for the purpose of judgment. I mean, this really the passages like this, as though we needed them. There really is no room in the Church of Jesus Christ for anti-Semitism. I, I don't. I don't see how it is even permitted to take root. But over and above that, we see that God did not raise. We might say God did not raise them up. We might say God doesn't, it's not God's nature to raise someone up for the sole purpose of judgment. But rather, that God has a spirit of inclusion and mercy. God wants to, wants his mercy to extend to them. And God is, even in their hardness, a arranging the situation so that one day there might be a return. I mean, we should see that in the nature of God. Paul clearly sees it. Paul's behavior in ministry is driven by him understanding the nature of God that that God the Jews though lost the God the God desires to recover. I mean that that says something about how Paul understands God's nature. And I think I think again here in this time and in this moment the question is Jew-Gentile. I do think, however, that we're, we'd be consistent and faithfully approaching the nature of God to say this is how he feels about people. Now, there's people who do accept Jesus and there's people who don't accept Jesus. And, and God will use their faith or their lack of faith to his own glory. This is what he said. I mean, in the ninth chapter of Just very strongly, you could say, God's going to do what God's going to do. God's name will be glorified, and his mercy will extend to those who are going to call out to him. God will do what he needs to do, but but nowhere here do you see God laughing or chuckling at the lost, but rather, I think you see a spirit that says, if there's a way to soften them, you could expect God to be there. we will develop it a little bit more here. But th- this is maybe a, a good point to say. There may be a remnant. So in Scripture, we talk about a remnant. Even among Christians, we talk about it. It right? narrows the road. Wide is the pathway to destruction. narrows the road to the Lord. We, we, we talk about the few. There may be a remnant, but it's... that's. It's not because the lifeboat of God is so small. That's not why there's a remnant. Okay? It, there may be few that call on the name of the Lord, but it's not because that the grace of God is a dinghy of salvation, and there's just not room for a lot of people. That is not the picture. You picture the picture is the grace of God is overwhelmingly large and will receive all who call on him but few call. I think the more appropriate picture is the ark, this huge boat with eight people. It is, that is by itself this ironic thing, this massive boat with eight people. And God can hold more. Okay, let's look at 16. 16, we're going to let it stand alone because it's going to connect old thoughts with new thoughts. It's a transition idea. He writes, If the dough offered as the first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul conjures up an old sacrificial law idea where if someone was going to offer, um, if someone was going to consecrate the loaf, okay, maybe the bread made in the temple, if the loaf was going to be consecrated, they would take out a pinch and offer that to the Lord. And in other words, Symbolically to say, this loaf is god's that that little that bite off of it would be regarded as set apart or or holy, so the whole loaf would be regarded as holy. if the part was holy, the whole is holy and Paul takes that idea and he transitions or transmits it to this idea of a tree. He says likewise, if the root is holy, if the root of the tree is set apart, then the whole tree is set apart and he's probably doing this. I, I don't know if it's one of these two our reasons or both of these reasons. But one would be that he's saying, listen, if the root, the root of what God's done, you can think of the patriarchs and the law and all the story of God in and the, and the Old Testament. God's worked very hard to tell this redemptive story. If the root's holy, then, then, then even though Israel is out right now, it still matters to God. It's part of the tree. He might mean that. I, but what he might also mean, and I think at least he certainly means this, is whatever, whatever can be connected to the tree of God is holy by virtue of the fact of the roots. And that idea carries here into the next, next section. Let me read 17 to 20. Now, again, he's still talking to the Gentiles. And he writes, but if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. All right, so he's writing, it's this moment he turns to the Gentiles. This is, I think, an important moment for the church. turns to the Gentiles, because you might say this, the Jews walked away for Jewish reasons. One might say that. They walked away for Jewish reasons, but we're Gentiles. Like, we don't have all the Jewish law. We don't have circumcision. We don't have holy days. We don't have these things. This passage says, no, the Jews walked away for human reasons, reasons that you're equally susceptible to. So watch it. That's kind of what this passage says. He says, if some branches were broken off, he, first of all, he notes he makes the Gentile us note that there really is no good reason why we are why we have been grafted into the olive tree at all. Right? We were a wild olive shoot, it says. Why it, this image runs counter to the agriculture of the time? You would not graft in the wild olive branch to the olive tree because the wild olive branch does not give good olives. It would be like grafting in a crabapple branch to the The golden, delicious apple tree. Why would you do that? In other words, do not be proud, Gentiles, as though you had something profound to offer the Lord, as though you were somehow benefiting the tree by your inclusion. It's not the case. You've been grafted in by faith. That's it. There's nothing you bring. You have no meritorious signature offering to the Lord by your inclusion when we can say, when we see the Jews walking away from the faith in Christ here in Romans and we see us coming in, it is not as though God just needed a better sample. It's not that at all. It's we have been grafted in by faith and only faith and they have been cut out because they don't have faith. It's very humbling moment. I mean in this whole passage we find out one God in reaching us with the gospel desires that that would in turn reach the Jews so that they would turn back, okay? That I that's humbling and I like that. I like that. Here it's another reminder. Listen. Do not be arrogant about being in because you're not offering the tree anything. The root nourishes you, not you the root. I mean, we could think of this as individuals, right? I mean, if, what if we were all little branches grafted into the body of Christ here? I mean, the same might be said true. Is don't, be, don't be arrogant. God didn't save you because of some meritorious moment or because you are an especially bright flower on the tree of God. You are in a wild shoot that has been pulled unnaturally into the cultivated tree of God. He says, don't become proud, but fear. He stresses it a little more. Let me read 21 through 24. For if God did not spare, this is why we should remain humble. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. It's interesting. You know, when we listen to the issues of the hardness of God and the remnant and those who have been hardened and kind of cut out. We, it's very easy sometimes, I mean, it's just to just take a few passages to think that God is kind of in his sovereignty making these divine decisions based on nothing other than his, something that he knows, and he's cutting out, and there's this finality to it, but the truth is, when everything is told, you get to passages like this, which says, those who've been cut out, if they turn around, they can get grafted right back in again. And He's not talking, okay, I don't think he's talking right now about Can you lose your salvation? He's talking about peoples. He's saying, listen, when I harden someone, when I'm cutting them, I I harden and I soften to achieve my will, to go where I want to go, but I'm not dancing on the graves of people who have been cut out. They may, in fact, come back. Likewise, those who are in, if they grow arrogant and forget why it was that they were saved, they would be cut out. Verse 24, he says, For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? I guess uh, the thing we should note is probably the thing that Paul tells us to note. He says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Uh, um, churches are really good at either noting the kindness of God or they're good at noting the severity of God. You know, there's good, there's kindness churches and there's severity, sev- severe churches. Churches who have a pretty robust theology of his justice and truth and righteousness. In future judgment, in churches that have like to really talk about his love and his mercy and his grace. And Paul doesn't say, Note then his kindness or his severity. He says, Note his kindness and his severity. God in his nature is bringing us grace and mercy. And God in his nature is in the work of redeeming the world. And that will happen. And if he will be severe to those who are hard in those places. Because he's trying to do something. He's trying to, trying to save the world. I, I have the, these, you know, I step back and I said, I even said it my Bible study Thursday. So what are the practical takeaways? Because this is kind of an inside baseball passage. You know? This is what I wrote. I wrote it in a negative sentence. Don't be a jerk. (laughs) Don't be arrogant about your faith. Guard your spirit from taking credit. Because that's a human problem, not a Jewish problem. It's a human problem. Which means it is as much in us right now as it was in the Israelites in 35 AD, 57 AD, this is being written. Long. There's a sense, you know, that idea of wiping the dust off your feet. You know, So you bring the gospel to a town. This is when the, Jesus, our Lord, sent out the disciples two by two. He said, go into town and share, and if they'll have you, peace to you, then go in their house and sup with them and share as long as you're invited. But if you're not invited, shake the dust off your feet and go. So that idea, right, That the beauty of that idea is, hey, it's not on you. It's not on you that the world converts. It's not on you that the world knows. It's on you to be faithful to what God asks you to be faithful to. Be faithful. Be faithful and carefree in your faithfulness, okay? But sometimes we think of the shaking the dust off their feet almost as a curse. You're like, um, cursed be you with the dust of my feet. You know, let's not be jerky about it. I think, I think we are more like the Lord when, even when they don't accept it's there. Like, I would still rejoice if they would. Even, in, even when the message appears to fall flat or fallen infertile ground, it still, I think, is right of us to say, well, maybe, maybe in us living the gospel out well here, we might incite them still to jealousy. This, this general hope, this general hope, that in, while there may just be a remnant, wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it just be great if others saw this and turned? That seems more in keeping with Paul, for sure, and, uh, and I would say the Lord as well. Here's how I would say it positively. Renew your humility before the Lord. This is a good time to renew your humility, to remind yourself that the life that we exhibit is life that's coming out of the root and pushing through the branches, not the other way around. We remain in Christ and then bear fruit. And I would, another positive way would say, renew a renewed sense of hope and joy that that the person that is an unlikely convert in your mind might come to know the Lord. That's what I would think. I've felt free to pray that now. Like When I think of that person, no, it's not going to happen. I'm not saying I can claim that. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm saying I can want that before the Lord. Lord, may, may that person see genuine faith and even in jealousy be turned back to Jesus. I think we're given a very wide berth to pray for the conversion of the world because the ship is a very big ship. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask you to make us humble so that when in, in we give truth to the world, it's never seen in an arrogant or jerky way or as though it's ours to handle. Lord, help us just to be grateful, faithful branches of your tree. And Lord, I do lift up uh, the unlikely converts that are in the minds of the church right now, maybe even the people that we know in our own way that seem to have been hardened. Lord, I, I, we pray your will be done. We pray knowing that your will is good, but we lift them up to you today. Lord, because you seem, you seem to have such a way of grace about you that even in your severity, there always, always remains your kindness. And Lord, and I would ask upon our church that we would be a meek and a humble testimony to your goodness, that we would force people to rethink. And I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I'm gonna close this in prayer, and then change hats, and we'll do our meeting real quickly. Uh, will you stand with me, please? Here's our blessing. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May his face shine upon us. May we stand in his grace through our faith and never grow arrogant. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.